So I need to preface this episode because after writing and recording it, I realized that I probably need to qualify some of how I describe the Pharisees in this account in Matthew. Well, the first thing I want to point out is that I'm not really describing the Pharisees. I'm not saying that this is what the Pharisees were like historically. Except when I say that they were from the upper classes, everything I say about them in this episode pertains to how I understand them being portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel writer is portraying them in a certain way for the purpose of telling this story. And I want to remind my listeners that in an earlier episode, I argued that the author of Matthew may very well have been a Pharisee himself. He was definitely a scribe, because no one else in the ancient world would have been able to write at the level that Matthew was written except a scribe. And the author of Matthew seems to view scribes and Pharisees as virtually the same group. And we have evidence of Pharisees joining the early movement of those following Jesus. For example, the Apostle Paul. I even read an article this week arguing that Jesus was a Pharisee. Now, I think that's pushing it too far because Jesus was a peasant. And I do see those two groups as mutually exclusive. Pharisees come from the upper classes. But I do think that the author of Matthew was likely a Pharisee definitely a scribe, and he brings in his fellow scribes and Pharisees for harsh critique. And that is typical of human behavior. We often reserve our harshest critique for those from our own circle whom we feel don't get it. Furthermore, there is ancient evidence that Pharisees often criticized their own movement. So all of that needs to be taken into consideration when listening to this episode. The caricature of the Pharisees that we get in this passage comes from someone of whom it might be said, it takes one to know one. Now, I don't want to say that the caricature is unfair. I think perhaps from the point of view of the author of Matthew, the movement had it coming. They deserve this treatment. But, we should understand that not all Pharisees were like the ones portrayed in Matthew. Many were far more reasonable and sympathetic to the common people, and some even joined radical resistance movements, like the Jesus movement. Which leads me to my final point in this preface, and that is that the Pharisees can be understood as a sort of resistance movement. Now, not always a very good resistance movement, and certainly not monolithic. I think there is good evidence that they often effectively collaborated with Rome. But that is often the case with the ruling class of an occupied nation, and they were part of the ruling class. The ruling class of an occupied nation tends to both resist and collaborate. They are in a very tough position, and so they are divided. But despite their failures and capitulations, most of them want liberation for their people. And for the Pharisees, it is this desire for liberation that fueled much of their zeal for the law and traditions of Israel. Let me say that again. It is their desire for liberation 
that fueled much of their zeal for the law and traditions of Israel. That is something to keep in mind when we read Matthew's criticism of their zeal for the law and traditions of Israel. So with those qualifications, enjoy this episode. Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last episode, the narrator of Matthew mentioned, for the second time, the fringe of Jesus' robe, using the same word that the book of Numbers, one of the books of the law, uses to refer to something that it says should be worn by men to express their devotion to the law. In that last Matthew passage, as in the passage in chapter 8 about the hemorrhaging woman, people touch that fringe, and they are healed. In fact, the author doesn't just use the normal word for heal or cure, but rather a word that means save, deliver, or liberate. So the people are not just healed by touching the fringe of Jesus' robe, they are delivered and liberated by touching that fringe. Somehow, Jesus' devotion to the law is central to his work of delivering and liberating his people. It is that devotion to the law that becomes an issue in the passage that we will look at today. The question put to Jesus is whether he and his followers are sufficiently devoted to the law and traditions of Israel to be able to liberate it. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 37 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Like many of the crazy things that happened during the Trump administration, one that has been long forgotten because it was two years ago, and in Trump years that feels like a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, is the time when federal workers went without pay for more than a month, many having to continue showing up for work during that time. And these federal workers started having to access food banks, and even go to homeless shelters that offer free meals to whoever walks in. In a supreme reprise of Marie Antoinette's complete disconnect from the realities of the common person, Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, wondered aloud on CNBC why the workers were in such desperate straits when they could just go to the bank and get a temporary loan to tide them over. Where do you begin to respond to something like that? Well, that's the sort of tone-deaf statement that Jesus encounters in our passage today. So let's just jump right into it and read chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. He answered them, 
And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks ill of father or mother must surely die. But you say that whoever tells father or mother whatever support you might have received from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. The Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem and engage Jesus about hand-washing. We haven't heard from the Pharisees and scribes since chapter 12 when they were constantly, throughout that chapter, harassing Jesus and his disciples, accusing them of breaking the law, calling Jesus the prince of demons, and demanding a sign. Now, the text tells us, that they specifically come from Jerusalem. Is this a special delegation sent to investigate the hand-washing habits of Jesus' followers? Now, putting aside the miles that they may have traveled to conduct this investigation, our modern sensibilities about hand-washing, especially during a pandemic, might predispose us to think that the Pharisees and scribes have a point. Shouldn't Jesus and his people be washing their hands before they eat? But this is not about modern scientific concerns regarding sanitation. It is about ancient ritual purity concerns. The question is not whether the followers of Jesus are putting themselves at risk of illness, but whether they observe the standard of ritual purity that the Pharisees and scribes believe that they should observe. Now, one thing to understand here is that this is a little different from the challenges from the scribes and Pharisees that we read about in chapter 12. In chapter 12, the question was, an actual matter of law. In chapter 12, the accusation was that Jesus and his followers were breaking the law. In this passage, the Pharisees and scribes reference not the law, but the traditions of the elders, an oral tradition which involves going above and beyond what the law requires. Here, the issue seems to be movement, discipline, and purity. How much are the Jesus people willing to do to go beyond what the law requires? How zealous are they for the traditions of Israel? And maybe, as I'll explain in a minute, how zealous are they for Israel's liberation? Jesus taught in chapters 5 to 7 that his movement should go above and beyond the law in matters of justice, forgiveness, reconciliation, and enemy love. But, do they wash their hands before they eat? That's what the Pharisees and scribes want to know. You see, the Pharisees had their own movement and their own discipline. In their movement, they advocated that the common people maintain the purity that the law requires of the priests. It was a sort of priesthood of the people ideology. So that's something that they sort of had in common with Jesus. Jesus was claiming priestly authority for the people. But the scribes and Pharisees were not suggesting that the people should have the priestly authority, only that they should maintain priestly discipline. The Pharisees wanted everyone to be at the level of purity 
that the priests maintained. That way, they would build a fence around the law and be sure not to risk transgressing the law. In that way, they would prove their zeal for the traditions of Israel. The priests were to wash their hands before conducting sacrifices, and sacrifices included meals, specifically the eating of the sacrificial meat. So if the priests did that, then the people should wash their hands before they eat. The law did not require it, but if the people showed zeal for the law, then God would honor that zeal by one day liberating them from the Romans. Yes, the Pharisees wanted liberation too. But their usual way of thinking about it was to follow a course of intense law-following, going above and beyond. So their challenge to Jesus is, on one level, about liberation. But it is a little strange, and not just to us, but to common peasants back then. The Pharisees and scribes again show themselves unable to read the room, or rather, to read the field, as it were. You see, peasants worked out in fields in rural areas, often without access to an abundance of water, unless they were right by the lake, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Unless they were there at the lake, they might not have enough water with them to waste it on ritual hand-washing. The upper or retainer-class Pharisees come from a completely different context. They live in Jerusalem, where the aqueducts bring water into the city. Now, the water didn't come straight into their homes, but they may have had servants who could fetch it for them. And in any case, Sirach tells us that they were men of leisure. That's Sirach 38.24 if you want to look it up. Men of leisure could focus time and energy on such matters. But the peasants were often in survival mode and were not always in a position to be able to access water that they could waste on matters of ritual concern, especially when the law did not even require it. And so here we have a similarity to the situation in chapter 12. People of the upper classes do not take into account the actual situation of the peasantry. So Jesus launches a counterattack. He criticizes one of their clever and elaborate legal maneuvers that allows them not to care for the elderly. Now, to be fair, I don't think the situation that Jesus addresses is one that actually occurred or one that the Pharisees really meant to encourage. It's hard to imagine the Pharisees and scribes actively creating a loophole to allow people to get out of the obligation to care for their elderly parents. Here is what I think is going on. The ancient rabbinic literature includes debates about whether one can get out of paying debts by declaring what is owed to be korban, which means dedicated to God, and that is the word being used in this passage, even though it is obscured by the NRSV translation that I read. My sense of what the rabbis were doing is using the hypothetical case of whether a person is duty-bound to honor the korban oath, even when the debt is the one that is owed to their parents, implied in the commandment to honor them. They use this as a test case to weigh which is more important, keeping the oath or honoring parents. 
that was typical of how legal precedent was established, you know, by weighing which law is more important, more holy. If they could answer the question in that case, then that might help them know how to judge other cases. It seems that some people were trying to get out of debts that they owed by saying that the amount owed was korban, dedicated to God. The rabbis seem to be testing this practice by imagining that it is being used to get out of taking care of one's parents, which would be a violation of the commandment to honor one's parents. The rabbis had differing opinions, but it seems that some rabbis thought that technically this vow is absolute. So theoretically, someone could get out of taking care of their parents if they made this vow. So Jesus uses this ridiculous ruling by some of the Pharisaic rabbis against the Pharisees and their scribes to show them how ridiculous their whole interpretive tradition tends to be. They not only are blind and insensitive to the situation of the peasantry, they even make a way for people to dishonor their parents by not caring for them, putting the whole population of the elderly of the society at risk. Despite the Pharisees' purported desires for liberation from Rome, Jesus calls their bluff. Jesus uses the quote from Isaiah 29 to characterize their thinking as the sort of nonsense that makes the nation ripe for foreign domination. The quote is part of a larger text in Isaiah about the domination of Israel by Assyria that results from the malpractice of Israel's ruling class wisdom men. Continuing a theme of turning conventional or ruling class wisdom on its head, the Isaiah passage goes on to say, I will remove them and destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will hide. That's verse 14. Let's continue with verses 10 to 20. Then he called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus calls the crowds to him. That's a first. Usually the crowds chase Jesus around until he stops and heals them or feeds them or teaches them. But here Jesus calls the crowds to him, draws them close because he needs to tell them something important and wants them to understand. The Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem have just criticized the crowds for not maintaining proper purity. 
They have publicly shamed the people. Jesus wants to take away that shame, tell them that they are okay, and that it is the higher-class men from Jerusalem that don't understand. Now, even to us, in another culture at a much later time, Jesus' teaching here sounds profound. It is not what goes in through the mouth that causes uncleanliness, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles. It makes me think of our current obsession with cleanliness and diet, which have their own merits. During a pandemic especially, we are concerned with washing our hands. And at a time when processed foods can put things in our bodies that we are not aware of and might do us harm, we are rightly concerned with what goes in through the mouth. Even if the poor and desperate of our world cannot focus on these things as much. But then someone says to us that what is more important is what comes out of our mouths. I think that would make a lot of sense to us. But in the first century Mediterranean world, where matters of purity and honor were of premium importance, such a statement required further explanation. So the disciples asked Jesus for an explanation. And Jesus says, Are you still without understanding? The audience of the story remembers that after training the disciples through seven kingdom parables in chapter 13, the disciples said that they understood, and that because they understood and needed no further explanation, Jesus proclaimed them to be scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven, scribes for the new society. But now, they again don't understand. So Jesus has to explain it to them. Jesus explains that what defiles are the words that come out of our mouths, what we say to each other, what we say about each other, and how we describe our world. How we speak makes all the difference. When we speak the evil intentions of the heart, we facilitate all manner of evil things. Now, On the one hand, with this teaching, Jesus redefines purity, and that is an important point. He often does that. But that is not all that is going on here. Jesus is being really clever. Scholars who have studied this passage, and a similar, more extended one in chapter 23, have noted that Jesus follows a line of argument accepted by some legal scholars at that time an argument that ritual purity flows outward from the body. That's the line of argument, that legal purity flows outward from the body. For example, bodily discharges were considered impurities that flowed outward from the body. This is a legal position found in the literature. Jesus' innovation here seems to be that he adds to these outflowing impurities the moral and ethical impurities of the heart that proceed through the mouth. And moral impurities were considered deeper and more consequential. Jesus has again shown himself to be a more clever legal scholar than those educated in the scribal schools of the ruling class. That is probably why the Pharisees are offended. These proud elite men from Jerusalem have been bested in a legal argument 
by a peasant. Jesus advises his disciples to leave them alone because their heavenly Father will uproot them. And again, the audience remembers something from chapter 13, the parable about the weeds growing among the wheat. The weeds must be left alone, left to God's judgment, for God will uproot them at the end of time. The people of the new society are neither to fear them nor to attack them. Jesus has demonstrated his devotion to the law by his deep knowledge of it, by being a skilled practitioner of it, more adroit and wiser than the elite wisdom men from Jerusalem. In fact, once again, he has used his deep knowledge of the law and traditions of Israel to deconstruct the interpretation of them by these elite wisdom men. That sets up the next episode in which Jesus will finally break into new territory, where, ironically, those who claim zeal for the traditions of Israel fear to tread. Until then, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by David Martin and Bob Nolte. Please spread the word about this podcast and rate us and leave reviews wherever you can to draw more people to this podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through PayPal. Just send the money to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. And thank you to all who have rated and reviewed the podcast, who have been spreading the word and sending financial support. We very much appreciate all of that. You can also send questions or comments or encouraging words to that same email address, subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 37 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.